Welcome to a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. This is a recording that I do of a weekly Monday night Bible study every Monday night at 7.30 at St. Timothy Catholic Church in Laguna Niguel. If you're interested in joining us live or via Zoom, please email me and let me know. We can get you plugged in, get you the link for that, or just show up in person. We'd love to have you. But without further ado, enjoy this recording of a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Bless us in our hearing of your word tonight, and allow us to be challenged, to be convicted, to be comforted, to receive answers for any questions we may have, whatever it is we're seeking, that we would find it tonight in the words of sacred scripture, and in our sharing with one another. And so we offer this time to you, invite the presence of your Holy Spirit here to be among us, to guide us in our discussion to illuminate our minds and our hearts, to know you more deeply, more intimately, and to follow you more faithfully in all that we do. Remove any distractions from our minds, anything that might be taking our focus away, and just allow us to feel the peace of your presence. And we just turn this and all of our intentions and worries over to you. We lay this hour and our lives at your feet, and we pray all of these things in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome. We are in Luke chapter 10 this evening, and this is the gospel for this upcoming Sunday, the is it 14th Sunday in Ordinary Time, I believe. Um, and so throughout the rest of this season of Ordinary Time, the rest of our liturgical year, we're going to be in the gospel of Luke, as I said last week. And so we're just going to slowly be journal, journeying through the rest of the gospel of Luke. Tonight, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 12, and then we're going to skip to verse 17. We're going to read 17 through 20. So we're basically going to read Luke 10, 1 through 20, but we're going to skip 13 through 16. Okay? Um, so we're hearing a little sandwich about Jesus sending out the disciples and then them coming back. That's why we skip over the middle. So <clears throat> we're going to read this twice through. First time through, I invite you to just listen to what is being said. This takes place immediately after the gospel we heard yesterday from the previous week, and that is about the would-be followers of Jesus where Jesus is saying, let the dead bury their dead. Um, no one who sets a hand to the plow and looks to what is left behind is fit for the kingdom of God, etc., etc. Basically telling them, to follow me is an unconditional commitment. You have to be able to let go of everything else. And in doing so, he chooses those who have made that commitment, and he sends them out. That's what we hear tonight in this gospel. So, first time through, just get a picture for what is being said. Jesus speaking to not only the 12 apostles, but the 72 collective disciples as a whole, and sending them out in pairs. So, chapter 10 of Luke, verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others, whom he sent ahead of him in pairs to every town and place he intended to visit. He said to them, the harvest is abundant, but the laborers are few. So ask the master of the harvest to send out laborers for his harvest. Go on your way. Behold, I am sending you like lambs among wolves. Carry no money bag, no sack, no sandals, and greet no one along the way. Into whatever house you enter, first say, Peace to this household. If a peaceful person lives there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, 
it will return to you. Stay in the same house and eat and drink what is offered to you, for the laborer deserves his payment. Do not move about from one house to another. Whatever town you enter and they welcome you, eat what is set before you. Cure the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God is at hand for you. Whatever town you enter and they do not receive you, go out into the streets and say, the dust of your town that clings to our feet, even that we shake off against you. Yet know this, the kingdom of God is at hand. I tell you, it will be more tolerable for Sodom on that day than for that town. Verse 17. The 72 returned rejoicing and said, Lord, even the demons are subject to us because of your name. Jesus said, I have observed Satan falling like lightning from the sky. Behold, I have given you the power to tread upon serpents and scorpions and upon the full force of the enemy, and nothing will harm you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice because the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice because your names are written in heaven. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> so we have a commissioning here of 72 disciples, sending them out, and then their return, reporting back all that has happened. You get a picture now for what is being said here. The second time through, as always, now I invite you to listen more deeply. See if there's a particular word, phrase, or detail that resonates with you in this passage. Try and remove from your mind any other thought than just following along with these words and details of the passage. And the second something sparks a thought or a stream of consciousness, whatever it might be, you'll know. It just resonates with you or reminds you of something that's specific to you in your own life. Uh, hold on to whatever that is. Begin to reflect on it, pray about it. Why is God allowing this to stand out for me? What is he trying to say to me through this particular phrase? So back in Luke 10, starting in verse 1, once again. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others, whom he sent ahead of him in pairs to every town and place he intended to visit. He said to them, the harvest is abundant, but the laborers are few. So ask the master of the harvest to send out laborers for his harvest. Go on your way. Behold, I am sending you like lambs among wolves. Carry no money bag, no sack, no sandals, and greet no one along the way. Into whatever house you enter, first say, peace to this household. If a peaceful person lives there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. Stay in the same house and eat and drink what is offered to you, for the laborer deserves his payment. Do not move about from one house to another. Whatever town you enter and they welcome you, eat what is set before you. Cure the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God is at hand for you. Whatever town you enter and they do not receive you, go out into the streets and say, the dust of your town that clings to our feet even that we shake off against you. Yet know this, the kingdom of God is at hand. I tell you, it will be more tolerable for Sodom on that day than for that town. Verse 17. The 72 returned rejoicing and said, Lord, even the demons are subject to us because of your name. Jesus said, I have observed Satan fall like lightning from the sky. Behold, I have given you the power to tread upon serpents and scorpions and upon the full force of the enemy, and nothing will harm you. 
Nevertheless, do not rejoice because the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice because your names are written in heaven. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So now I invite you to look back over the passage, reflect on the things that stood out to you, and when you feel so inclined, feel free to share those with the people who are around you, as well as any questions you have about the reading. If you're watching this on Zoom, feel free to uh, share any of those reflections or questions in the chat. We'll make sure those get shared. If you're watching this on YouTube, please leave those in the comments. We'll get them answered. But for those of us here, take about 10 minutes or so to uh, do that with the people at your tables, and then we'll bring it back to the large group. All right. I'd love to hear what are some of the uh, things that stood out to you and some of the questions that you have. Katie, what do we have on Zoom? Um, I have one question from Rick, and he's asking, what did Jesus mean when he said, I have observed Satan fall like lightning from the sky? Mm. So... We have references to this in the Old Testament, in Job and in Daniel. Um, this has to do with the origins of the devil. And in Catholic theology, uh, Catholic Church teaches that the devil was an angel. That at the beginning of time, God created all of the angels, uh, revealed to them the plan of uh, creation, that he wanted to create man and woman in the Garden of Eden. And uh, just like he gave us free will in order to freely love God in return, he gave the angels free will. However, there was one difference. We have like perpetual free will, whereas we can continue to choose God or choose not throughout the course of our life. But because the angels were intimately involved in the uh, forces and the, the events of creation history, they needed to make a once and for all decision. They still gave them free, free choice, but whatever their choice would be, would be their choice for all eternity. And so theologians say that uh, based on some references in scripture and other things that have been revealed through different, you know, um, through different revelations over time, that they believe that Satan rebelled in his pride and took with him a third of the angels. We have references to that in Revelation chapter 12. In fact, let me read that. I'll turn to Revelation 12. Um, and this is the scene of the battle of St. Michael the Archangel with the dragon, who is the devil. Uh, and this is verse 7. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels battled against the dragon. The dragon and its angels fought back, but they did not prevail, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. The huge dragon, the ancient serpent, who was called the devil and Satan, who deceived the whole world, was thrown down to earth, and its angels were thrown down with it. Okay, so that is from Revelation. So um, what Jesus is saying here is that basically from the foundation of, of time, like from the beginning, Jesus was there present. He saw this happen. But he's also saying this to warn the disciples. Because what happens right before this? Disciples come and said, Lord, even the demons are subject to us because of your name. In other words, they're saying, Jesus, look how great we are. Look how great we are. Look at what we're doing. And Jesus is saying, be careful of pride. Because I saw even Satan fall like lightning from the sky. Okay? So it's not even you. Even you, despite the things that I have been able to do in and through you, you still have the opportunity to fall. Uh, even in Matthew chapter 7, uh, verse 22, or 21 and 22, Jesus says this to the disciples. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not drive out demons in your name? Did we not do mighty deeds in your name? Then I will declare to them solemnly, I never knew you. Depart from me, evildoers. 
So Jesus here is putting in perspective the fact that God is in control. This is not about you, disciples. This is about what God can do through you. And when you completely surrender and let go, how God can use you as this powerful supernatural instrument of his glory. But if you make it about yourself, then even the good things that you've been able to do in life will not outweigh the pride of rebelling against God and thinking that we can take his place or that we are as great as he is. So to answer your question, Rick, that's kind of why he's putting it there, but also what that means in terms of Catholic theology about who the devil is and where he came from. Yeah, Margo. I look at that a little bit differently mm -hmm. than that. Because I, given all the work that they accomplished and the impact that they have and the things that they saw that they did, they were still giving, coming back and giving the credit to Jesus. Mm -hmm. So I looked at that as being, you know, just, yeah, a little positive rather than, you know, don't get too caught up in yourself. I don't think they were. They were giving, they were giving credit where credit was due. Yeah, I mean, they do say even the demons are subject to us because of your name. Like, they're in there. You know, the demons are subject to us. And in reality, no demon is subject to a person. Like, even exorcists. Like, exorcists do not have commands over demons. Only the Lord does. And they use the name and the power of the name of the Lord to do those things, to drive demons out, to have that control. And so whether or not they're saying it's about us, Jesus is kind of presenting a, hey, just in case. Just in case you think this is about you, remember. Remember what pride can do. And I saw it happen at the very beginning. So he could be right. They could be totally innocent, but he's he, he knows how this story can go. You know, He knows where this can lead, and so he's trying to present this. As God always does. All throughout the Bible, people turn away. He sends prophets. He sends people to say, hey, you shouldn't be doing that to kind of correct or to warn. And yet, he knows the story that we constantly tend to choose ourselves. We constantly tend to turn to sin instead of our first choice being God. So, yeah, it, you could interpret it either way, whether or not they were, you know, saying that this was about them. But I think either way, Jesus is giving them that warning. It's just like, a, hey, just in case, just in case you thought this was about you, it's not. <laughs> was there more on Zoom, Katie? Yeah. I have two more. Um, verse 11, the dust of your town that clings to our feet, even that we shake off against you, mm -hmm. is that in regards to those that perhaps will not welcome us or receive yes. us? Yeah. Is that treating them with indifference? Um, it's kind of seen as an insult. You know, it was, a, it was kind of an ancient insult. And this happens actually, I think, in Acts of the Apostles. Um, Paul does this in Acts chapter 13. Where is Acts of the Apostles? There it is. Um, where are they? They're talking to Gentiles. Uh, oh, no, they go. This I think both the times this happens, Paul is addressing the Jewish people. And he's saying, hey, we came to bring you the gospel first, but you didn't listen. So now we're going to go to the Gentiles. And this is in Acts chapter 13, verse uh, 50. Uh, the Jews, however, incited the women of prominence who were worshippers and the leading men of the city, stirred up a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their territory. So they shook the dust from their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium, which is not a Jewish territory's part. I believe that the Decapolis were some of the Gentiles and Greek speakers were. The disciples were filled with joy in the Holy Spirit. So that it happens again in, in Acts chapter 18. So it's kind of an ancient, like, you know, stick it to them, you know, kind of a, a response to inhospitality. That like, all right, we don't, we don't carry anything from you with us anymore. We're shaking you off of us as if, you know, you are worth worthless like dust or as if you know you never even had any um 
any part in us. We'll even shake the dust of your town off our feet. Um, we'll take none of you, no part of you with us, no memory of you, no relationship with you with us. So that's kind of uh, what it means. And then Vicky was wondering if there's no, if there was not a peaceful person, did that mean they were not friendly to them <clears throat> and they went on to another house? Yes, or they would go on, I think, to another. I think the instructions he gives, let's see. Whatever town you enter and they do not receive you. Yeah, so if no one in the town receives you. But it does say, if you go to a house, say, peace be with you. And if your peace, uh, if they receive it, then their peace will rest on it. If not, it will return to you. It doesn't necessarily say go to the next house or the next house or the next house. So I don't know if this means, you can interpret it either way. Like Jesus or the disciples go to a town and they just pick a house. And this house is like, all right, this house is like responsible for the whole town's response here. And if they respond with hospitality, then they can bring the message of Jesus and his kingdom to that town. And if they respond with inhospitality, then basically the whole town is like kind of loses out. Um, and based on the very collectivistic culture of that time and the, the real value of hospitality in the culture, I would, I would assume that would be the interpretation. You don't go to each house and finally find the hospitable one. You go to the town and just one representative of the town, and if there's hospitality there, then you see that as indicative of the whole community. We think differently because we live in a very individualistic world. You know, it's like everybody gets their shot, everyone gets a chance, you know, everyone gets a, a, an opportunity to do this or say that. But that's not how it was then. You know, there's this very collectivistic identity of the community. And we lose that, but that's really how we're supposed to see each other, right? The, the scriptures say in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, all about um, how there are many gifts. Just like we're, there are many parts to a body, but we're all one body in Christ. And that we are meant to represent the body. And anything that we do affects the body. Any sin that we commit affects everyone else around us, whether we realize it or see the ramifications of it or not. That's a spiritual effect and a relational effect on other people. And so that's true here, you know, the people who are receiving the message. But it's also true, remember, of the disciples from the gospel we had before this, like the gospel, the, the, I mean, sorry, the disciples of, yeah, I said that right, of the gospel we had yesterday, that they had to completely let go. And if they weren't willing to do that, if they were still attached, if they were still struggling whether or not they really wanted to follow Jesus, that would have reflected back on the body of Christ as well. So just like they have to make a full all-in commitment, those who receive the message have to receive them with full hospitality too. All the things that we do affect one another. That's the importance of these, these kind of gospels back-to-back -back that we've had last week and this week of being fully responsive to Christ and how important that is, but recognizing it's about him. It's not about us. Just like in the readings last week, we don't then go around saying, like, I left behind my plow, and I let my dead bury their dead, and I'm so great. No. It's because we think that Jesus is so great. You know, we want to submit our lives to him. The same thing is true here. Bruce. <clears throat> the wisdom of sending them out two by two. We're not enough on our own. Mm -hmm. We'll get prideful on our own. We need somebody to balance us out. Yeah. We don't have all the answers. Uh, we need support when we're troubled. They're going into a tough world. Yeah. When it's bulls, so to speak. You gotta have some you gotta be paired up with somebody in the general sense. Yeah. This is this Bible study is part of that. Yeah. But but uh, everybody should be looking for a, a prayer partner, a Bible study reading partner, somebody that goes through life with you. Mm -hmm. When you hit these hard times, or you're doing ministry and you hit the hard times, yeah. 
Don't be out there by yourself. Absolutely. Wholeheartedly agree. Yeah. My favorite paragraph in the Catechism, I quote it all the time. Paragraph 166, faith is not an isolated act. No one can have faith alone, just as no one can live alone. Each one of us is a chain in the great, uh, a link in the great chain of believers. We only have faith because we received it from others, and others in the future will only have faith because we pass it on to them. And so who are those people? I mean, there's a practical reason, too, I mean, to prevent things like robbery, theft. Um, remember in Deuteronomy, in chapters 17 and 19, they have those specific laws about eyewitnesses that you need two or more witnesses to prove that something had happened. And so if one person comes to your town and said, we found the Messiah, they'd be like, well, you're just one guy. Like, you could be a crazy person, you know? But in order to be an admissible testimony in a court of law, it had to be the testimony of two or more men, specifically in that culture. And that's who Jesus sends out to show that there is clout behind what they are claiming. That he's not being flippant in the things that he's asking them to do. He's giving them the authority that they need, sending them out in the way that they need to be sent to do that. Um, but also, yeah, the partnership, you know, being able to bounce ideas off each other, to fill in the gifts that the other one doesn't have. You know, maybe even playing good cop, bad cop. I don't know. Who knows what the you know situation might call for? But who are those people in your life? You know, who are the people you would be paired with? And again, as Bruce was alluding to, it's not just like a coupling idea. It's an idea of like, who is your tribe? Who is the group of people around you who is holding you accountable, who you can reach out to for prayer, for help, uh, to challenge you, to really check in with you? And see, like, hey, are you are you praying? How's your prayer life? You know, how's that going for you? Are you uh, committing to the things that you said you were going to commit to spiritually? And even the good things you want to do in life, you know, body, mind, and soul. We need those people in our life because we're, we can't do it on our own. And we're not meant to. <clears throat> we're done. And greet no one along the way. Yes. He said uh, to, to, to me, do not be sidetracked. Anything else? Partly. Um, this, this is, we don't get this too much, I think, in the culture at the time. This would have been a very shocking thing to ask somebody to do. I mean, a culture all about hospitality, to just be like, go, don't even say hi to anyone. And you're like, well, why? Like, that's all we do is we say hi to each other. You know, like, in, in that culture, that would have been very, very bizarre. Um, and I think part of it, don't get sidetracked. I think you're right in that. The only other area um, of scripture where I see an allusion to this is in 2 Kings chapter 4. Um, is it Elijah or Elisha? It's Elisha. Um, the prophet Elisha, he, how do I summarize this really succinctly? He um, has been staying with this Shumanite woman, which is just the area she's from, and um, she couldn't have a child. And she's been very hospitable to him over the years. She had a house a room in her house made for him because he traveled through there a lot. So he blessed her by saying that the Lord would provide her with a child. And he did. Um, but then something happens to the child as he's older. He falls ill in the field and he falls down dead in his room. And I believe this is the situation if this happens. Yeah. And so Elisha uh, says to his servant, uh, his attendant named Gehazi, to go to the sun and do not greet anyone along the way until you get there to lay your staff upon him and he will be healed. Um, and for one reason or another, Gehazi does, Gehazi does this, nothing happens. Son does not raise from the dead. It's not until Elisha goes and is able to perform the miracle that the son is able to be raised from the dead. But the interesting thing is later on, about a chapter later, the interesting thing about scripture is scripture doesn't always tell you if something's right or wrong. It shows you later on in the story of that person's life. Gehazi, like a chapter later, um, some Elisha uh, cures uh, Naaman, the Syrian who has leprosy, Syrian general, and he tries to pay Elisha with all these gifts, and Elisha refuses them. Gehazi runs into him as he's leaving, 
And he hears about all this stuff that Alicia was going to receive it. He's like, oh, uh, Alicia wants that now. Give it to me. And he receives it. And uh, when, when he returns to Alicia, Alicia's a prophet. Obviously, he knows exactly what happened. And he says, because of what you've done, the leprosy that I cured Naaman of is now going to rest on you for the rest of your life. And he now becomes a leper who's isolated. And so that, I think, points to this idea of showing, like, have this unabashed, completely unconditional devotion to the Lord. Do not hold back. Do not get sidetracked. Know what your mission is and do it. Don't let anything derail you. Don't let anything be more important than this in your life. I mean, for us, we live in a world that is dominated by distractions. So much noise, so many things at our fingertips to help us procrastinate from the things that we really need to be doing, especially in the spiritual life, but even just the good things that we are responsible for in life. And so this is a really, this gospel is a really hard challenge, I think, for us if we understand what it is really asking of us, to be completely focused tunnel vision minded on the gospel of Jesus Christ and his kingdom being built in our life and everything else falling under that or being completely let go of. It's a hard thing to do because if we don't, if we start to have that pride that Jesus warns about, we hearken back to that story about Gehazi and we recognize there are consequences to all of the sins that we, that we commit. You know, God is not there in heaven punishing us. He's there saying, okay, you made your bed. Now you have to lie in it. And I'll allow you that free will. I'll allow you to commit that sin, but you're going to reap its consequences. And so he's always giving these warnings. You know, don't grieve. Don't get distracted. Don't think this is about you. Stay focused on the mission. Greg. Kind of cracked up a little bit. <clears throat> Stay in the same house and eat and drink what is offered to you. Mm -hmm. Do not move around from one house to the other. Yeah. Let's see if town. And the same thing farther on, you're like, eat what is given to you. Mm -hmm. Oh, the food was good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was reading this, and I don't know how many of you remember when Father Leonard was here giving our parish mission a few years ago. Um, but he was talking about when he, he's a, a Jesuit priest from Australia, a very famous international speaker and author. And he was here, and he was talking about when he was, I believe when he was in the seminary with the Jesuits, they do this thing where you have to, you have to travel, um, you know, from one place to another a long distance relying solely on the charity of others. And you cannot tell anyone that you are a seminarian, that you are studying to be a priest, that you are religious at all. You just have to you just have to say like, I'm on my way to this place, I have no food, I have nowhere to stay, can you provide anything? And only then, if the people allow you in, can you tell them who you are and what you're about. But once they learn who you are, you cannot accept any upgrades. You cannot, you know, they're like, okay, you can have the garage, and we'll give you a TV dinner, and then they find out you're going to be a priest, and they're like, oh, please stay in the guest room, and we'll cook you a nice meal. You have to say, no, no, no. I, I'm going to take what the first offer was, because it's this kind of method of discipleship. That's what Jesus is saying. There's, there's no possibility for upgrades here. They may think you're these, like, freaks who are coming in, but rely on that hospitality. Once they realize, like, you can heal people and cure them in my name and drive out demons, don't get caught up in the glory of that and start accepting all of these gifts and bribes or whatever it might be, accolades, for these efforts, because they're not from you, they're from me. They're in the name of Jesus. So, you know, no upgrades are available. Uh, there's no first class in the life of discipleship. We get our benefits um, in the, you know, Delta Lounge in heaven or whatever it is, you know. So, yeah. Hey, Lynn. 
Yes. He said to them, the harvest is abundant, but the laborers are few. So ask the master of the harvest to send out laborers for his harvest. Is he talking about himself? Yes. Or, or I thought maybe he was talking about when they meet somebody to have them send out other people. Mm. I don't know. Yeah, I think the, the harvest imagery is for like the, you know, the time of reaping. It's just kind of this urgency. You have to bear the fruit now. It's always used as an analogy for end times. You know, like um, the, the chaff will blow away in the wind, but that seed which bears good fruit, you know, will be, you know, saved or whatever it is. That's kind of the analogy. Uh, all of the weeds will be uprooted and thrown into the fire. So this kind of harvest analogy is used a lot in scripture for the end times or the bringing about of the kingdom. And the harvester or the owner of the vineyard or whoever that role is, is always Jesus or the Messiah, whether they know it's Jesus yet or not, because some of these appear in the Old Testament too. So I would assume the same thing is true. He does word it in a way where it's like he's asking them to do something he's already doing, which is kind of interesting. Uh, so I'm not, I don't really know if there's any other interpretation, but that's what, what I would interpret that means. Yeah. Yeah. Don't wear any sandals, really? Yeah, no sandals. You try going around wearing sandals? Yeah. I tried it on the beach. I went on rocks a little bit too. Yeah. I used to hike in sandals when I lived in the mountains. It was a weird thing. I don't know why, but I just one day I was on a hike and I only had sandals. It was an impromptu hike. People were like, you want to go for a hike? I was like, sure. And I only had sandals in my car. And then everyone was like, that's so bizarre. I was like, well, it was comfortable. So I always hiked in sandals after that. Um, but sandals are, you know, if you know from the story of the prodigal son, when the prodigal son comes home to his father, the father gives him a robe, he puts a ring on his finger, he puts sandals on his feet. Sandals were the sign of a free person, someone who was free to leave. Okay, if you were a slave or a servant, you weren't allowed sandals because it was part of a discouragement to, for people to run away. You know, you had this servant, this, uh, this debt you had to pay to the family. So he's basically telling them, like, you are not your own. Like, you are not your own master. Like, you committed to a life of being in servitude to me, to the gospel, to God. You are not free in the, that sense of being, like, independent and autonomous. You've committed your life to this. And so don't take any of these things that would allow you the comforts of feeling like you are your own person. This gospel will keep coming back to this idea. This is not about you. This is not about your priorities, your life. This is about what God can do in you. And it is so much greater. So don't be attached to these things that you think you need or you think will make you comfortable, you think will make you happy. This is what God can do in you. And it's not about you. It's about him. But the glorious, beautiful thing is that we are invited to be part of it. And how cool that is. How beautiful that is to be co-creators with him. Yeah, no one. Oh, yes, I'm glad you brought that up. So the interesting thing about this number, 72, is actually in most manuscripts it says 70. You see this in the footnote, and you might have two in brackets in your Bible. And in some other ones, and both are important manuscripts, we can't really tell which one is the most accurate one, but most of them, from my research, say 70. Okay, um, 72 might have been a scribal error. Um, it is 12 times six. There's a lot of numerology in the Bible. And so 12 is like the number of tribes of Israel, the number of the apostles. Um, six is like an incomplete number. Um, so it means like a, a fullness of, but it's not yet complete. Um, so it might be like 
a numerical designation showing that this is an expansion of the 12, but it's not yet reached its fullness or its completion, like the church is going to continue to grow. Um, but I really like the scholarship around the idea that it's 70, and a lot, again, a lot of the manuscripts of multiple language traditions say the, the number is 70. And I went down a rabbit hole with this number. So, um, so 70, as I've said before, numbers in Hebrew are all letter designations. There's only the Hebrew alphabet. So if you want to spell, and if you want to say a number, you use letters of the alphabet. So every number has some kind of meaning, and every word has some kind of numerical value in, in Hebrew. Uh, and so 70 has this representation of wholeness or completeness. Okay, there's a sense of it being complete or whole. Here are all the different places where 70 shows up in a significant way in the Bible. Uh, first one is in Genesis chapter 10, when the descendants of Noah are being listed, all of their lineages are being listed in the story of the Tower of Babel. Tower of Babel is when God comes and separates all of humanity and uh, allows them to have all different languages because they were so proud they were trying to make a name for themselves by building a tower as high as the heavens. Okay, it relates to this. This is not about you. So God allows them to be scattered. If you read the, uh, the amount of nations or languages that are listed in Genesis 10 called the Table of the Nations, there is 70 in the original text. Okay, so there's 70 different nations believed to have been existing or um, descending from those original uh, descendants of Noah. And so this is a symbolic gesture saying that the disciples went to every nation that was then, every nation and every language that was then known. It's kind of a literary representation of that. Um, in Genesis and in Exodus, the uh, descendants, the number of descendants of Abraham or of Jacob is, is 70. So the, the amount of people who come to live with Joseph in Egypt when there's a drought that brings all of the Hebrews to Egypt um, under Pharaoh's rule is uh, 70 descendants. Uh, when they finally are led out of slavery into the wilderness, there's this moment where Moses has to delegate authority to some elders. And this happens in Numbers chapter 11. And this, I think, is why there might be a scribal error. Um, there is 70 elders that are selected. Let me see. Um, this is in Numbers chapter 11, verse 24. Moses went out and told the people what the Lord had said. Gathering 70 elders of the people, he had them stand around the tent. The Lord then came down in the cloud and spoke to him. Taking some of the spirit that was on Moses, God bestowed it on the 70 elders. And as the spirit came to rest on them, they prophesied, but did not continue. Now two men, one named Eldad and the other Medad, had remained in the camp, yet the spirit came to rest on them also. Okay, so we have here in the book of Numbers, Moses appoints 70 elders who are given authority of the Spirit, and yet there are also two more who are in the camp that weren't part of this that suddenly also received the Spirit. Nobody knows why. So there's this kind of disparity between is there 70 elders or 72? That's why I think there might be a scribal error here, because they might have had this story in their mind. Okay, important uh, number of elders. Why is that important? Because later on, the uh, hierarchical structure of Judaism uh, when we have the time of Jesus, we have the Sanhedrin, which is the group of priests and elders who make judicial decisions and decisions about the law. The traditional number of the Sanhedrin was 70 members. So they were kind of a holdover from that authoritative group of Moses. They saw it as kind of a hierarchical tradition. Um, and lastly, uh, or two more things, um, the number of holy days in the Hebrew calendar was 70. If you include all of the Sabbaths and all of the special feasts, there was exactly 70 holy days in the Hebrew calendar. 
And uh, in Psalm 90, verse 10, uh, it's, it alludes to the fact that 70 years is believed to be the normal generational lifespan at that time of a person. So at 70, the number 70 meant the completeness of a person's life, the completeness of our worship, all of the different holy days, the completeness of the authority God gave through Moses to the elders, the completeness of the law and the Sanhedrin, the completeness of the promises of the descendants of Abraham, and the number of nations and languages that could have existed at that time. So all of this can be a literary representation of Jesus basically saying, in that line of ancient tradition, in the people that God chose, to fulfill his promises, Jesus is coming to fulfill those promises. And to all of the nations and all the languages in the world, Jesus is sending these people with that same level of authority that they would have considered the elders of the Sanhedrin, etc. The sense of wholeness and completeness. So there's a ton of significance to that number, which I think is super cool. So anytime you see a number in the Bible, just circle it, especially if it's a weird number. If you're just like, why is this here? You know, it's like 153 fish, you know, that story in John, the end of John, where they catch 153 fish. Pay attention to those things, because that always means there's some kind of significance, numerologically, most likely. Sometimes there's not. Sometimes they're just keeping a really random historical record of how many people lived in one place. But oftentimes it has a, a pretty cool um, literary description or representation. So that was my rabbit hole about the number 70 that I was on this week. So there you go. <laughs> Other uh, questions, thoughts, things that stood out to you? Yeah. In verse 6, when it says um, it will return to you, what does that mean? Um, your peace will rest on him, but if not, it will return to you. You know, I don't know. There is this sense in, um, in Semitic cultures that um, when you greeted someone, you would get, and this still is to this day, if you go to some Semitic cultures or Arabic cultures, you stand close enough so that you would breathe on the other person. And it was seen as a sign of blessing. And so your wish, it was seen as like a wish of that person's wholeness, peace for that person. It's a sense of shalom. And so there's a belief often that, you know, um, God's name, the name Yahweh means like I am who am, I am existence. It's a, it's a name that is all breath sounds. You know, the name of God is basically like breathing in Old Testament language. And so if you're going to give some of your spirit, some of your divine essence to someone and blessing them, and if they reject it, then it just comes back to you, is basically what it's saying. You know, not that you're giving them anything physical, but I think it was part of this kind of sense of blessing, the presence, the breath, the greeting, the giving of peace was this wishing of wholeness. And it had to do with the sense that, like, I'm offering to you some part of my connection with God and inviting you into that. Um, that would be my guess. But I didn't see anything in any of the commentaries about what else that could mean. Yes? Why is he, um, at the beginning, he says that he is sending him to places that he intended to go himself. Yes, so he's saying that he's sending them places that he intended to visit. Notice that Paul does this in the New Testament, right? He sends letters to different churches that he intends to go to, or churches that he intends to visit again that he had established. So it's kind of like a primer for people to receive him. Um, I don't necessarily know why he does this, but it doesn't hurt, obviously. Uh, you know, in the book of, I think it's in the book of Joshua, when the Hebrew people who escaped from Egypt are about to enter into the promised land, they send in spies to go and kind of tell the, the, the what's the word, reconnoiter the land, you know, determine if it's safe, what kind of, um, you know, military presence there is, what it's going to entail coming in and taking ownership of the promised land. So 
you know, they weren't there necessarily proclaiming anything, though. So I think it's just to, uh, I don't know, prime the palate of the people to see if they're, if Jesus is going to be welcomed, you know, if he's going to, if it's worth going there, um, or if they're just going to completely reject him in the first place. So, yeah. Other questions? Or things that just stood out to you that you found interesting? Yeah, there's a lot of allusions to that in the Old Testament of our names being written in the Book of Life. Uh, in Daniel chapter 12, um, when it's talking about the time of the resurrection, this actually relates to that section I read of Revelation where Michael is battling the devil. It says, at that time there shall arise Markle, Michael, not Markle, Michael, the great prince, guardian of your people. It shall be a time unsurpassed in distress since the nation began until that time. At that time, your people shall escape everyone who is found written in the book. Yeah, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie The Mummy or one of the mummy movies, but there's like the Book of Life, the Book of the Dead, you know? Um, a lot of that I think, comes from this ancient tradition that there were like these, you know, the names of the elect, the names of the righteous were written in some kind of sacred text and kept guarded over by the gods or guarded over by God. You know, Hebrew, um, the Hebrew uh, elders, the Hebrew writers probably assimilated some of that cultural idea and used some of that language, partly maybe to be evangelizing, but partly able to be able to kind of relate to the surrounding cultures and help people understand what that meant. Yeah. It's interesting. The same quote that he uses uh, for his disciples to go about and heal the sick which creates a very intimate connection. It says the kingdom of God is upon you. Mm -hmm. And then he used that same phrase. He said, if you go into town and they don't like you, they want you to get out. Use the exact same phrase to them. Behold, mm -hmm. the kingdom of God is upon you. Yeah. I just thought that's an interesting juxtaposition. Yeah, and isn't that interesting? What a great, I think that's a really great word for us tonight, especially given the political climate of the world that we're in this past week with, you know, Roe v. Wade being overturned and things like that and a lot of political discourse and division. This idea that, like, we are called to speak a truth to people regardless of how they receive it. And that doesn't mean that that gives us license to be rude, angry, hurtful. Remember, you know, in First Peter chapter 3, it says, always be prepared to give a reason for your hope, but do so with gentleness, with reverence, with self-control, so that no one who maligns you um, can defame your good conduct or something like that. That was a very bad quote. Uh, but uh, I miss, miss, mess up the end of that. But anyways, you get the idea that we're, all, we're supposed to witness to the truth, but we're supposed to do it in a way that is gentle. You know, be as uh, wide, wise as uh, serpents, but as gentle as doves, is what Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew. And so I think that is a, a good note to put here. No matter how people receive it, the message is still the same. The message is still the same. We don't sugarcoat it for people who may not understand it. We don't make it more difficult for people who are ready and willing to accept it. The truth is the truth. The gospel is the gospel. God loves you. God created you. Sin separates you from the plan that God has for you. And Jesus came to die so that you would know the beauty of that plan and be invited to a relationship with him through the Catholic Church that he established. Like That's the central gospel message. And that is the same anywhere we go in any given situation. Whether they receive us or not, that is what we're called to preach. And even when they're inhospitable to us, recognize Jesus doesn't say, just leave. He says, still proclaim it and then go. You're still called to preach the truth, but then leave. 
then let go of it. You, you put it there, maybe it's planting a seed, you don't have to stay. I saw a line today as I was doing some reading for something that says, uh, it said, oh my gosh, it's so good. Um, you do not have to respond to every debate or argument you are invited to. You know, and, and pretty much every social media post these days is an invitation into an argument, basically. You know, like, especially if it's something we may not agree with, you know. But you don't have to respond to every invitation. Okay? But when we do, or when we enter into conversations with people, we, we are called to preach the truth. Not dance around it, not sugarcoat it. Preach the truth regardless of what might happen, regardless of what we might be afraid of. But then we don't have to entertain all of the rest. We can just say, this is what I want you to know. This is what I think... God is telling me to share with you because he loves you. That's that. And then we can be free to go. We don't have to entertain all of the rest, uh, regardless of the issue. And so I think that that's a really good thing to take from this gospel this week, to not also be attached to, like, how we're received. You know, because it's really easy to witness to the gospel when you're in a room of people like I am right now. Everyone has, like, what, do you, what about the Bible? We want to know more. But if I was in a room full of atheists who, like, really just hated everything that I was about— would I be this willing and would it be this easy for me to share? I hope so. But it, that's the challenge, right? That's the challenge for us as disciples, to be willing to not only let go of everything Jesus talked about in last Sunday's gospel, our homes, the things we're attached to, but also let go of our ideas of comfort, our ideas of being liked, of being accepted, of how we want to be viewed, or the things we might lose if we're not viewed as someone who is you know, allied to certain causes or certain stances or beliefs of the modern culture, are we willing to deal with those consequences? Is Jesus, is Jesus worth it enough to us? I heard it posed this way this week. Someone said, um, if Jesus came to you and he said, I will give you everything that you want in your life, you just won't have me. Everything that your, your wildest dreams have ever wanted, the home, the money, the accolades, the achievements, I'll give it all to you. You just won't have me. Would you be tempted to say yes? I think most of us would, you know, the Catholic in us is like, no. And then I think about all the things that I want, right? You know, and like how nice it would be to have them sometimes. Like in that moment, if I knew Jesus was there and offering me this, of course I would want to say no. But I think there's absolutely a part of me that would also want to say yes. Because that's the battle of good and evil within all of us. I think Henry Nowen says it that, um, you know, the, the, the line between good and evil is not between nations or political parties. It is drawn right down the center of the human heart. That we all have this compulsion toward one or the other. Which is why so much of what Jesus says to the disciples is so much about our inner life, our inner commitment, our inner attachments. Whether or not we're willing to let go and commit, share the truth regardless of what might happen. To do it with love, but still to do it. It's not a free pass. Just because the situation might not call for it. If we feel the Lord giving us that opportunity, we share it. That's a hard thing to do. But we have to know and believe that Jesus is worth it. Otherwise, we really have to come to terms with the fact that we're attached to a lot of other things. That we might be willing in our heart of hearts to sell out Jesus for at a moment's notice. Maybe we've never thought about that before. I don't think I had ever thought about it until I heard it put that way today. It's just like, wow, that would be... A hard decision for a lot of people, myself included, if I really am honest with myself. But Jesus is worth it. Other thoughts, questions? Awesome. Well, I think.
think everything that I had uh, desired to share got out in some capacity, so that's awesome. Um, but I think this echoes what was said last week in the gospel and will continue to be said. Next week, next week's gospel, uh, we're not going to meet next week in person because it's um, 4th of July, Independence Day, so it's a holiday. So this Bible study will be pre-recorded and on YouTube at 7.30. We'll be back together the following week. But next week's gospel is all about the greatest commandment, how we're called to love one another. Letting go of what our idea of love might look like. And that radical idea of sacrificial love for the other that is sometimes really, really difficult. Um, I was listening again. I was listening to a lot of stuff today, apparently, that the Holy Spirit wanted me to share. So that worked out. Um, I was listening to Father Mike Schmitz give his homily on, on his podcast. And um, he was talking about Steubenville conferences, these weekend conferences that often happen in the summertime. And I've been to many of them over the years as a former youth minister. I've taken teens to them. I went to them when I was a young adult before I was in ministry. And at the end of the conference on Sunday, they do this kind of a vocational altar call. If there's any young men who are potentially interested, feeling like they might be called to be a priest, to come up to the front and be prayed over. And he was kind of griping about the fact that a lot of the young men who come forward to do this and the young women who come forward as potential religious sisters, they come forward, they're prayed over, and then they like go home and they never pray again or they never consider it again. And so he started doing this thing where he, when the young men are up there, he has all the dads stand up in the room and all the fathers, you know, fathers, husbands stand up in the room and basically, you know, asks them a series of questions like, you know, do you, do you love being a dad? Yes. You know, is it, is it amazing to have a family or to be married? Yes. But is it hard? Yes. Do you constantly have to die to yourself and sacrifice? Yes. So basically he's able to tell these young men, look, no matter what, you're going to have to die. <laughs> You have to die to yourself as a priest or die to yourself as a husband. The sacrifice, what it means to love, what it means to follow Jesus in any vocation is the same. Letting go. And so regardless of our age, vocation, background, state of ministry, how much we know about the faith, how little we know, how involved we are, how uninvolved we are, whatever it might be, that message is for us. How are we being called to die to ourselves and remember, it's not about us. It's not about what I want. It's not about my plans. It's about what God wants and can do in and through me when I say, all right, Lord, I'm ready to let go and surrender. That, I think, is the word for us this week. Regardless of whatever situation you and I go into, that's the command. And that's where we're called to share truth, regardless of how it will be received. So we pray that, with bold, that we would have the boldness, the wisdom, the ability to do that this week as we pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for these challenging words of this gospel. And we read this story, it is not just an event that happened 2,000 years ago, but it is a commissioning that you are giving to each one of us as your disciples. Help us to identify those people who we can be paired with, grouped with, to go out into the world and to share the gospel, to share the news that the kingdom is at hand regardless of how it is received, to share it not for our own glory but for yours, to not seek for our own gratification or our own rewards, but to always seek to glorify you in all that we do and remember it's not about us, it is about you. So we're reminded of the words of St. Catherine Siena that you spoke to her when she prayed to you and asked who you were and who she was in your eyes and your simple response, I'm God, you're not. Help us remember that in all that we do this week. Amen. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen.